Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. The Athletic. The Phil Hay Show. Welcome to the Phil Hay Show. Collaboration between The Athletic and The Square Ball. I'm Dan Moylan from The Square Ball. Michael Normanson. Hello. And of course, from The Athletic, here's Phil Hay. Hello. You can get signed up to The Athletic now for 2022. 33% off the full price of a sub. There's analysis, in-depth features. There's a huge team of football writers there. Ad-free versions of these podcasts as well. And you can read everything that Phil writes. And this week you've been writing about injuries, among other things. Yes, because why not? Um, we'll get into that in, in a little bit. Uh, I'd also direct people towards an interview that Richard Sutcliffe has done with Carlos Corbin um, at Huddersfield talking a little bit about Bielsa. And if you look online this morning, there's an interview I've done with Stevie Ward, who was the captain of Leeds Rhinos, who retired last year with concussion, big Leeds fan, um, and runs a, a, an online magazine, online website, uh, Mentality, helping men with, with mental health and, and mental well-being. And it was a pretty fascinating chat that actually got on to Bielsa's tactics, got on to Click's Twitter account, his views on Leeds United as a club and, and football in general. Um, so well worth a read that if you've got the time. Theathletic.com forward slash Leeds pod to take advantage of that offer. It's theathletic.com forward slash Leeds pod into the football first and foremost then. And uh, we're not going to be going to Wembley for the FA Cup this year anyway, Phil. How was the, the London Stadium experience for you? Because I haven't seen any Leeds fan say a good thing about that stadium? No, quite impressive, I thought, in the way that you can get a 9,000 capacity away end there. And I'm not saying there was no noise from it at all, but it's so spread out. The stadium is so enormous and so cavernous that it just doesn't feel like that many people packed into an away end. I was thinking about the game at Old Trafford back in 2010, and I'm pretty sure Leeds took 9,000 to that. And they were just on top of you for the whole game. They were in your face, and and it... It felt like a, a massive, massive away following. Because London Stadium is so vast, you can see that there are lots of people in it, but everybody feels kind of detached from detached from the atmosphere and, and detached from the environment. And I don't know, it's, it's one of these stadiums where you walk in and because it is so big, it almost sucks the life and the energy out of you. It makes you feel a little bit tired. I was thinking back to a conversation I had with David Prutton about the, the playoff final in 2008 when Leeds lost to Doncaster. And he said that, it was his first experience with the new Wembley. He'd never been to it before. And he, he walked out onto the pitch and it was so massive. It was so huge that it almost it almost deflated you. You didn't sort of feel any buzz. You didn't kind of feel any energy coming from it. And I, I just thought it was as flat an FA Cup tie as I've, as I've watched. I know Leeds have had really bad experiences in the FA Cup, but away at Rochdale or away at Newport, away at, at Sutton, you have a crowd there who are engaged by, you know, what's going on and who are into the potential upset who are into the, the chaos of it all. It just felt on Sunday like going through the motions really and, and getting to the point where where there was a result. And if I'm going to be brutally honest, looking at the VAR decision, it felt as if they were trying to dodge extra time as well. I mean, that was a truly appalling decision, wasn't it? I mean, we don't need to retread it all because I mean, we said it a lot on our podcast this week. There's been everything has been tweeted and written about it, but just sum it up for us in your opinion. What on earth are they playing at? As soon as I saw the replay, 
I assumed that it would get disallowed. I didn't see any way that, that it couldn't really because, first of all, I was thinking to myself, has Bowen actually got a touch on this and, and has his presence made a difference? And I don't think he did get a touch on it. And what the ruling was basically that he hadn't interfered on the basis that he hadn't made Melier's save more difficult. But there was no way that you could reasonably draw that conclusion when he is jumping over Melier's arms as Melier is going for the ball. And it is the issue of interpretation in this. The assumption that VAR, because it has video replays, is going to solve everything is flawed because ultimately everything still comes down to the decision of referees. And you know, Peter Banks being the VAR on Sunday, it was his call and it was his interpretation of that, which seemed completely at odds with the interpretation of just about everybody else. I mean, I had a few West Ham fans on my feed who were trying to argue the toss. And and it probably goes without saying that had that goal been reversed and had that been a Leeds goal as opposed to a West Ham goal, there would have been, I think, quite a small number, but there would have been people on my Twitter feed saying, well, Rafinha didn't touch the ball. You know, it didn't, didn't make a difference. That should be a goal. But it seemed to me that everybody looked at that and said that should have been disallowed and it just doesn't help you know he, he's kind of two years on or 18 months on from VAR getting properly launched and, and, and pushed um, or at least from, you know Leeds being involved in it and it just doesn't feel like it's improving You landed on the same conclusion that I did that who saw that at first glance and didn't think oh that's offside within 10, 15, 20 seconds Well we were watching it in here weren't we and because yeah. it was via the was streaming via ITV player you were a little bit ahead on your phone and you actually went you were like oh they're doing a check oh it's been disallowed I think because yeah. you, you saw it and you you kind of didn't see any other conclusion being yeah. reached. But then, I, I just landed on the word offside on people tweeting the word mm-hmm. offside around journalists. I think like you and Graham and stuff were saying, oh, it's, it's gone to be a check. And I think my glance went, oh, that's it's been disallowed. But, and your eyes went, oh, right, yeah. Yeah, because he's offside. That makes <laughs> that does make sense. He's obviously offside. Whereas but, the Bamford one last year when he was offside, you looked at the still of it to begin with before the lines went on. You went, oh, onside, perfect. Yeah, they're going to give this. And then you never quite know what you're going to get, do you? I'm not sure David Moyes would have complained about it I think he he said afterwards to be fair to Moyes he, he said I haven't seen it I generally haven't had time to watch the replay but he asked he was asking the journalists on the call what they thought of it and it was quite split actually there were there were a fair number of journalists who said it should have been disallowed there were quite a few who said they, they thought it was a thought it was a goal I thought it should have been disallowed I think if it had been at the other end of the field I'd have, I'd have felt exactly the same the easiest solution to this I think in the short term is to do what they do in, in rugby union, which is to allow you to hear the conversation that's going on between the referee and your VAR and to let you see what the thought process is so that at the very least, when they do award that goal, you understand why they have and you understand what the decision process has been. That doesn't mean you're going to be happy with it or you're going to agree with it, but at least as a starting point, you don't spend the next, well, it was like the next 24 hours until you know people at the FA started to, to kind of clarify what had gone on. But wondering how that, how that decision that would have taken. That would have been interesting in the um, the Mali-Tunisia game yesterday as well with the, uh, the refereeing performance. In that. <laughs> Is that the guy who blew up for full time at 85 minutes? And again at and, 89. And, again, yeah. and, and also sent someone off for, I think, zero contact and gave a bad penalty. It was a complete performance. Interesting. I, I mean, there is a point where refereeing sort of crosses over from massive seas to massive hilarity. And I think that was borderline <laughs> massive massive hilarity that not for the people involved them. I'm Just, going to say, and what you, you were know, saying but, there though about televising the, the conversation or whatever because I mean the fans in the stadium are completely in the dark as well you've got always no idea always have been yeah. always have been but you're watching viewers get a little insight into it but even then there isn't that accountability but it feels like because this season you know they're not showing the drawing of the lines anymore are they they're just showing it after it's been decided and how they landed on that conclusion but you still don't get the accountability it feels like they're moving away from accountability not towards it 
Well, I don't think the drawing of the lines ever helped because you can kind of see what you what you want to see. And you would assume that in the background there is an algorithm or computer program that can say accurately, is this line in front of that line and, and make a decision. But when you just get a screen grab, which is thrown to supporters, you're inclined to say that your player is onside or offside, depending on which favours you. And if it's incredibly close, you can you can pretty much see it as as it would suit you. So it's not as if hearing the conversation is going to solve the problems. The, the, the problem is basically that some of the judgments are really poor and don't seem to be based on the rules and, and don't seem to be based particularly on, on common sense. But as I say, you would at least have some explanation as to why the decision's being made. But you, the point you make about the you know, VAR in the stadium is a good one and has been a problem from the start, I think, which is that the people who are there and the people who are most affected by the incident in the experience of being at the match have no idea what's going on. I mean, if you were in the away end on Sunday, given that in a massive crowd you get virtually no 4G or 5G coverage, so you can't really check your phone, I don't think you'd really have known what they were looking at particularly. I mean, I know it comes up on the screen saying checking for potential offside. You were a kilometre from the actual live action as well, if you're at the back of that stand. So what... What, what's going on? You know, what, 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 what is it that they're looking at? How have they decided what's the, the final ruling been? All you get is the referee going, go. And yeah. that's it. Yeah, it's, um, it's unsatisfactory. What did, are they, it, did it make a difference to the game, do you think? Probably not, because Leeds were not particularly creative at all on, on Sunday. They probably played as well as I expected them to play. And, and once again, massively down on numbers. And they had Greenwood up front, they had Lewis Bate in midfield. Helder um, at centre-back, who I thought had a terrific game. They were very much in the game, but not having the best of it. But even so, up until the point where, where Vlasic scored, it wasn't like the goal was being peppered. You know, it wasn't... I didn't think West Ham ever got out of third gear. Particularly, I don't think they were ever forced to get out of third gear. And I, and I suspect that was the reason for the, the half-time changes that Bielsa made, was that it was a little bit too easy for them. It wasn't like they were going to town and, and careering away from Leeds, but they weren't having to do an awful lot. Um, to get themselves into into the fourth round. So did it make a difference? Well, it definitely did because the, the game was goalless at the time. But I think one way or the other, that would have ended up being West Ham's day. That really was the main interest from a Leeds point of view, wasn't it? It was the spine of the team, the the debutants. And how do you think they all got on then? Maybe Gelder was the star turn out of the three? Yeah, um, defensively, I, I thought he played really well. Antonio is is a player who seems to be getting better and better as he as he gets older. An extremely physical, extremely hard runner, and really difficult to, to defend against. And not just him, but I thought Helder managed the players he was he was head to head with really, really well. And a bit like Creswell against West Ham earlier in the season, it was very easy to look at him over those ninety minutes and think, if you had to rely on him at centre back, you'd be quite happy with that. He looks like he he could be extremely good. I did like what I saw of Bate. It's been a long time coming for Bate, and it's been a strange situation with him because. Everybody who watches the 23s thinks that they can see a lot of class and a lot of ability in him. And it's very easy to to appreciate the way he pulls the strings, the way he picks passes. And yet he's been the one prominent 23 who's found it more difficult really than anybody else to get into the squad and to get onto the bench, even at a time when there are so many injuries. And the last time Bielsa was asked about this, he kind of laughed and said, that's the sort of question I'd expect a parent or a, an agent to ask of me. As in, why are you not playing my son, or why are you not playing my my client? God, he wants to, doesn't but, want to go on Twitter, does he? <laughs> no, no, I, I don't think ever. Um, but but it, it was a reasonable question. Why is this kid who is excelling in the twenty threes having a hard job of getting into your match day squad when when you're down on players? But it's kind of classic Bielsa keeping people on on your toes. 
it's a battle to get into the 20, but then suddenly you get in your full debut at West Ham. And okay, it was it was injury injury related, but it was good to to see him see him play. And and I, I came away from those 45 minutes thinking I'd like to see more of him. With Greenwood, I didn't think it was... Yeah, some of his movement was decent, I felt, on Sunday, but I didn't think it was a game where he was ever going to be able to affect it because Leeds just were not creating a great deal. What do you think of the way that Bielsa manages the 23s into the, the team? Because it feels like they're often thrown in in moments either of crisis or when we're seriously depleted. And it, it goes back to what we were saying about how Gelhart has been introduced, almost keeping him on a leash and using him at the right moments. Whereas that's been taken away as an option, hasn't it? Like Bay, I dare say, wouldn't have played in that game had we had everybody available. So he's been thrown into really difficult circumstances. Is it not easier to kind of ease him into a, I mean, I know I've not won very often this season, but like a winning position, that kind of thing, a gentle introduction from the bench? No, it definitely is. And and actually, I, I've started to come around to the way of thinking that Gilhart has been managed really well. Generally speaking, he has been put into the team at points where he was likely to make a difference and, and has made a difference. I think you're right about Bate. I don't think he would have started at West Ham had everybody been fit. But this is kind of what happens when you find yourself down to the bare bones or the cremated bones, as somebody else put it on, <laughs> on Twitter earlier this week. You, you have to make do um, with the players the players that you have. But then on the flip side, you know, Helder, that'll be good for him, that game. You know, the, those 70-odd minutes will, will do him good in the way that Creswell against West Ham earlier in the season no harm done to him at all by playing that well against, again, Antonio and a, and a, a really good West Ham side. So I tend to feel that the management of the 23s is, is pretty good and pretty sensible. I think the problem this season with it is that so many players are injured that you don't have the luxury of deciding strictly what you're going to do with them. You know, if you want to blood bait slowly, fine, but then you go to West Ham and you have no players. So what do you do? He, he starts. And for as long as it's like this with injuries, it's going to be very difficult to have a strict and fixed plan for the 23s because a lot of them have got to play. Well, unpack this Cody Drame move to Cardiff for us then, because that flies in the face of uh, the idea that Bielsa prefers the 23s to be around Thorpe Arch, learning from him rather than out on loan. But this one, driven by the agent. I very much get the impression that it was driven from Drame's side. The message from Leeds at the start of the window was that none of the 23s would be going because you do the head count yourself. You, you can't afford for them them to leave. And even on Sunday when this story first broke, the club was saying that a decision hadn't been taken on it. I was very much given the impression that because the injuries were as they were, it wasn't really feasible. Well, just, but, just stop you for a second. And so when that story broke, because it broke via Fabrizio Romano, so has, yeah. that, has that come from the agent then, do you think? Right. I can't. I couldn't tell you. I couldn't tell you. It's possible that, that it has done. Um, well, you don't get the but, impression that the club are, are obviously telling that to journalists because they wouldn't, well, no, I, I think the, the situation at the weekend was that they were they were totally undecided about that. And I think erring on, on the side of thinking that they needed all the bodies that they could get. But there have been conversations with his agent and there were conversations with his agent before he went on Wednesday. And it seemed to me that it was very much the case of Drame wanting to go and get games and wanting to go. And I see how that will benefit him. I mean, six months four months, whatever, five months in the in the championship at Cardiff playing regularly could be really good for him. So no no dispute there. But I less get the sense in letting him go at a point where you're already down on numbers. And I can understand people being confused about the, the decision to do that. And when Bielsa speaks tomorrow, I'll be really interested to see what he says about Drame because my gut feeling would be that Bielsa and the club would have wanted him to stay. I don't see in the short term who this really benefits. And I can also understand people saying, even if Drammy wants to go and play, and even if it's a, a potentially good move, 
these are circumstances in which you could say no. Well, well why it, didn't they say no? Because I would, my guess would be, or my from you know what the question I've asked and what I've been told, my assumption would be that because he wanted to go, the view was taken that it was better to let him go than it was to to hold him back here. And you'll remember with uh, it's a totally different level of player this, but you'll remember with size in Bielsa's first season, him telling the club that he was homesick and wanted to to leave it. And okay, he hadn't been in, in that particular period. He'd, he'd started strongly under Bielsa. And then he drifted out of the team a bit and he'd been on the bench and it had been more difficult to, to get games. But he was a big player and he was a really talented player and he was somebody that you saw as a, as a core part of the squad. And at the point where he said, you know, I'm homesick, I think I want to go home, the club said to Bielsa, we've got this situation. And rather than Bielsa saying, well, look, talking round, let's get him to stay, it was a case of if he wants to go and he doesn't want to be here, then he goes. And he did. And you'll remember that Saiz went from Leeds before the transfer window even opened you know it was a case of just draw a line he went home back to Spain and, and that was the end of it and there were two weeks in which he could have been in the squad still prior to, to that move I think it was Gironi he went to but I, yeah, I might have that wrong but he you know he, he could have played or could have been involved for another couple of weeks and it was just a line drawn and as I say I, I will be quite fascinated to see how Bielsa explains this because again I do wonder if it's a case of if Drame and potentially his agent, are intent on taking this move because it means he gets first-team football rather than 23's football and rather than you know a short amount of exposure in the first team at Leeds, then if, it, if that's what he wants, then let him do it. Is there a way back for him after this then? I know the club have said that, you know, the that, bright, bright future and all that, but if you're, well, if you're out of the circle, then are you not out of the circle? Will he, will he move on? Because the, the conclusion you're naturally drawn towards is that he's not happy at Leeds. I don't know about that. I don't know if it's a case of not being happy at Leeds. I wonder if it's more a case of just looking at the offer coming from Cardiff and thinking that's an opportunity for me to play four or five months of continuous first-team football and at his age, that might be really good for him. And let's not pretend that that isn't how under-23s tend to think. You know, it's a different situation it leads to, to a lot of clubs. And under-23s who are prominent don't tend to go out on loan. They tend to stay close. They tend to be involved in, in the matchday squads. And you'll remember Hayden being Hayden Evans agent being on this podcast a few weeks back. He's Jamie Shackleton's agent and Charlie Creswell's. And also, yeah. also Creswell's. And he got on to talking about Creswell and he said, Charlie's in one of those strange situations where it's great being involved in the first team and he absolutely loves it. But because he isn't involved in the first team, he's not getting a huge number of minutes in the first team, which is fine and, and understandable because they've got Urenti and they've got Cooper and they've got Robin Koch. They've got Strike as well. You know, there's a hierarchy and, and that's how it is. But because he is so heavily involved under Bielsa, he's not playing much in the 23s either. So in short, he's not getting a huge amount of competitive football, active active football. So for somebody like Drami, I can see why a short-term move to Cardiff would appeal. And there's no option in the loan for Cardiff to take him permanently. The message was very much that he will come back at the end of this. And, and they still see, as they did when they signed him, they still see Drami as a really talented player. But I think this is a very difficult one to spin as a decision that the club wanted to take. Anybody who looks at this and says, this seems weird given that we don't have that much in the way of resources anyway, is right. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Well, with Cody Drama going to Cardiff, any news on incomings, Phil? Any news, Phil? Uh, John Swift, has he signed yet? Any news? Any news? <laughs> I, have put, uh, I have put John yeah. Swift on the notes again just to... Uh, amusing. Yes, yeah. let's let's keep that one going. There has not been much sign of progress this week, I have to say, but we're still halfway through the window. We will see, but no, nothing, nothing really to to add at this stage. It's still midfielders who are the main point of attention. It's still midfielders that they want, midfielders that that they need. But times times ticking now, and and it seems to me that the you know the pressure to to get incomings will rise more. I think after this weekend because it's Newcastle at home after that, and that is clearly a, a kind of direct battle with a team who are very much round about leads. And spending money as well. Yes. So that is always going to be held up as a as an example of how to approach your January. Obviously they've got the, you know, limitless wealth of uh, whoever it is that owns them driving that one. And we've seen well Chris Wood we've seen already is uh, announced this morning as we record this. That's an interesting move, isn't it, that one? A good move for him, I think. When he went to Burnley, there was that question of are they going to get relegated straight away? Are they, you know, is he going to go for Premier League football and then find that there isn't actually any Premier League football at, at Turf Moor? And it's gone pretty well for him over there. He's had a kind of st- sustained run in that league. And you would have to say that at the point where it looks like Burnley have finally got into some pretty severe trouble. I know they've been on the brink a little bit previously, but this is this is probably worse for them than it's ever been. And and you know, watching them on. Uh, on the 2nd of January, it was hard to see a huge amount of hope and optimism in, in that side. Hope's never visited Burnley. You don't think? No. no. It, maybe Bob Hope did once. Um, <laughs> it feels to me like he's going at the point where he probably needs to go. And if you were hedging your bets at the moment on Burnley on Newcastle, I think you'd be hedging them on Newcastle, wouldn't you? Have you uh, Have you seen the final day fixture, by the way? Uh, no. It's Burnley versus Newcastle. <laughs> Tremendous. <laughs> Tremendous. I know people have been slightly laughing at this because I guess I guess when you've got unlimited wealth, Chris Wood isn't probably the person who is... Well, the fans were singing about, Mbapp- not, were singing about Mbappe, weren't they? Yeah, he's not topping it. Like Man City went out and got Rubinho, didn't they, in the, when, the, when the money arrived? And Chris Wood, I guess he's a, a fairly functional lower-end Premier League striker. But I think the thing is, people talk about Moons being a, a stepping stone. I think this is a stepping stone for Newcastle uh, just to avoid... Relegation. I think it's a pretty decent signing at this point for them. I, I don't think in six months' time or twelve months' time this is a sort of transfer that they'd they'd be all over. I mean, if, but, if they get relegated, it's a it's a good transfer because he'll be good for them. Well, he he will he will do, but I think he will score them some goals, which is absolutely what they need. They've got Trippier as well, so you would think that the service from out wide is is going to be better, and that's very much what would feeds on. You saw it with a couple of chances that, that Charlie Taylor created for him at Ellen Road. That's what. That's what he's after. 
So I suppose you could say in Newcastle's defence, they're, they're kind of being sensible, aren't they? They're, they're looking at what needs to be done to bring this to heel immediately. And part of the answer to that is to get somebody who might score them some goals. And there's very little point in them spending January messing about with strikers who are more high calibre than Wood, but who they're not going not gonna to get, you know, or, or, or are going to say no to them. It's a striker in. They've got some very, very big games coming up this month. I, I don't think it's a bad deal, that one. Yeah. Are they genuinely just trying to buy everyone? Or is that just the press being lazy and knowing that they've got this this pot of money? Because they are, they are literally linked with like a dozen players every single day. It always happens whenever a club get big cash, when it kind of arrives via investment. They won't be after everybody, but they will be casting the net pretty wide because January is such a short window that you need to have options and you need to be able to move through options quickly. And if, you know, if Wood from Burnley doesn't work, and obviously there was the release clause, which meant that if they wanted him, they could have him, provided they, they paid the money. But if that doesn't work out, then you can't just say, well, we wanted Wood and we didn't get Wood, so we'll just not bother with anybody else. But time, you know, time ticks on. So they, they will be in for, for a fair number, but probably nothing like the number that's been linked with them. And Wood does directly weaken Burnley as well. So it's quite a canny move in that regard. Depending on who they sign. I mean, if if they're sensible with the money, and you know, Connie was a was a good signing in the summer, I thought, and a very different signing to what they normally do. If they were to find a striker who was better than Wood, then with twenty five million pounds, then no, it doesn't. But in the uh, you know, for the time being, they they are definitely weaker without Wood in the squad. It will be interesting to see what Newcastle do if because they've got I think it's Watford, isn't it, this weekend, and then was the week after. If they were to lose one or both of those games, how that then affects the final week of the transfer window, whether they have to readjust targets again or what? Because it could cut them adrift. I think also how it affects the back end of the season because there are games that you look at and think are very winnable. So Watford, for example, and I think they will target Leeds. I think they will look at the Leeds game and say there's absolutely no reason why they can't win that, the same as Leeds will look at it and think that that, you know, three points to be had there. But once you start to, as you know, as Leeds have seen, once you start to stray back into the your games against Liverpool, Manchester City, Chelsea, then it becomes extremely difficult to to pick up points. And Newcastle and the others down at the bottom of the table are going to hit a point if the points don't start coming soon, where it does get desperate, and where the the number of wins or the number of results you need are so vast that you start to ask yourself, where are these coming from? Given that they haven't been there at, at any stage of the season. It does at the moment feel like a big sort of Royal Rumble between the bottom four. Um, and I don't think clubs above the bottom four should assume in any way that they're not going to get sucked into that. But if I was, I can't remember if I said this last week, but if I was Newcastle, I think my only point of concentration would be on being the best out of those four. As for January windows as a concept as a whole, then you're not a fan, are you? Mainly because you get <laughs> you get peppered with questions on, on Twitter. Oh, Is there a sell-on clause in the wood deal? That's what we need to ask first. <laughs> sell-on clauses are always the thing. How many times? People are asking us about this at the square ball and why would we know? We've absolutely no idea. We don't know much about football, full stop, never mind. This. I, I don't know for sure if there's a sell-on clause in the Chris Wood deal, but the point about sell-on clauses is that the percentage only applies to any profit made um, on the player. So the profit that Burnley make on uh, on Chris Wood going to Newcastle, if there was a, a sell-on clause in the deal with Leeds that was done in 2017, then the profit is subject to that, that percentage. But given that Leeds got 15, 16 million pounds for him as the initial fee, and he will have ticked the box on almost every single add-on and incentive as well, I'd be very surprised if there's any significant cash coming back from this at all, mm. if indeed there even is a sell-on clause. Um, but even if there is, I don't think it's going to buy Mbappe, put it that way. (laughs) 
Thanks for clearing that up, Phil. <laughs> I mean, what is it with, with January windows? Are we are we scarred just from? I mean, I know we've got in the most recent memory the Jean Kevin Augustin thing. Never is, heard of him. Is there front and centre, and and that is due in front of Cass, isn't it? The court for arbitration for it sport, is, which yes. is essentially it's the final hurdle to clear before we get a definitive ruling on this. Yes. FIFA rule and then um, leads appeal to CAS and then CAS decide it's arbitration like any form of arbitration a final ruling on the matter yes that might well start coming up next month I think but certainly at some point in the early part of this year I would expect there to be some some progress with that I don't know what it is about January but I think the January window has so much capacity to disappoint and to underwhelm it's a really short period it's kind of difficult part of the season to act in the market as freely as you would do in the summer when when you've got time. I always notice in January that that's when all the grievances come out. You know, how much people hate people at the club, individual players, journalists. You know, it's, it's, it's just a massive, massive onslaught of dissatisfaction, which is worse, obviously, when you're out of form and, and the team are, are not doing particularly well. But I, I do remember somebody last January saying to me towards the end of the window, it's a total dereliction of duty if the club don't sign a centre-forward for the second half of the season. And I read that and thought, well, Leeds are going to stay up regardless. And they didn't sign a centre-forward. But, you know, they were so far down the line last season that January didn't really matter. You know, it didn't need recruitment in January. But I think because the window opens, everybody sort of thinks, well, we might as well. You know, might as well just, just get players in. This is totally different, this window. I mean, Leeds are not in a good position in the league. They're not in a good position when it comes to the injury list or, or anything else. And it was the Tottenham game... Um, which is going back a good few weeks now where I wrote afterwards that January looks like a time where they are going to have to recruit, really, whether they, they want to or not. And I haven't really changed changed my view on that. The only thing I would say is that I would like to think that because of the urgency or, or the pressure put on by injuries and everything else, it doesn't mean that all principles are abandoned and you would still hope that any signings that are made are good for now, immediate impact, but also can flourish next season, season after. You know, like longer term signings that, that help you to build a squad rather than just dealing with immediate trouble. But, you know, the, the immediate trouble is something that they need to sort out. I asked you this question, you can answer me. When have Leeds had a good January? When when have you gone through a January? And let's rule out last season, because last season, last season, January was fine. I mean, they got beat at Crawley and everything. The results were a bit mixed, but by the end of it, you know, it was, it was all good. My first year covering Leeds was 2006-07. And that January was fairly... A vintage year. Uh, it was, a, it was a vintage year, yes. <laughs> a, vin- a vintage in how to get relegated. That January, it was Amando Sa, it was Robbie Elliott, it was Alan Thompson, it was Tori Andre Flo. Kind of weird and wonderful, wonderful mix. And it does seem to me to be a timeline of if you go through the Januaries pretty much without fail. My favourite is Simon's War Chest when that didn't get opened. Exactly, 2011, and, yeah. And then, then we got Adam Smith where we needed some experienced defenders. So we 2012, got a, So yeah. we got a child from Spurs and then Simon got fired. Yeah, um, <laughs> on the on the first day of February. Mad Friday, 2014, when it, it all fell apart. 2018, Christensen Saez getting sent off at Newport and completely losing control. I mean, in that window, they did sign Roberts and they signed Forshaw as well. And stripping out the injuries, which I know sounds a, a bit ridiculous, I actually still think like Forshaw was a good signing there and then. You know, he's a good player and that, that totally made sense. Could Lawrence de Box still come good from that window? Well, never say never is always my attitude <laughs> to, to these things. And um, J. Roy Grott we're short left backs, aren't we? as well. I, I don't know whether it's the same everywhere. You'd, you'd have to canvas supporters, but I wonder how many supporters find January a fulfilling time of the year and how many actually deep down hate it because it just makes them feel awful. 
I was looking at um, looking back at some. 2013 was Ryan Hall, Michael Tong, uh, Ross Barkley, Steve Morrison, Stephen Warnock, and Habib Habibu. Wow, which was some great business from uh, from Warnock there. Yes, and then even 2010, you had Beckford asking to leave, which was great. It's just always, it's always, always been been tricky. I do wonder sometimes what they think of the January window. We have had a little insight into it. You know, when we spoke to like Angus Kinnear and, um, and Victor Orta when you were off um, absent, Phil, and I can't remember which one of them it was that said, if you have to do business in January, it means that you didn't get your summer business right. And yet here we are. I think that's partly true. But then again, opportunities throw themselves up. So Aston Villa have done Coutinho. I've done um, Dinia from Everton as well. And there was no obvious sign at the start of the season that Everton would be making him available for a transfer at this point. I mean, I would suspect that that Gerard has been made promises when he took the manager's job and this is Villa starting to to fulfil them. So there are opportunities at this time of the year that, that are worth taking. I think what they probably mean is if you are under pressure or desperate to make signings in January, then yes, you haven't got it right. Have like, you? like now? Well... Do you think it's desperate? Well, that's what I was going to say. Is yeah. actually my my next point was going to be because like if you if you were to take Twitter as the thermometer of how fans feel, which is a, it's a dreadful place at the best of times because it's just a place where everyone pours all their anxieties, whether it's about life, politics, but mainly about Leeds United with a lot of the people that that we follow. It's akin at the minute to like you watch what Villa are doing with like Coutinho and, and how do you pronounce his left back? Is it Digna Dina Digni? Digna, I think. Yes, it's that's yeah. the guy. And it's like your neighbour driving down the road in a fancy new sports car and you're looking out the window and thinking, well, he's got a new car. I need to get a new car. Why haven't, I, why haven't we got a new car? Shouting downstairs. Signings always seem good until the uh, until they actually see them as well. Like Coutinho looks really good on paper because people remember Liverpool Coutinho. He might look like a complete waste of money in a, in a month's time and people will be going, well, that's a lot of cash on wages thrown away and we've Interesting only had a loan fee. Isn't it? Yeah. See how, how that one goes. I mean, I... I don't rate cars any more than I rate <laughs> NFTs, so it's no, it's not really any problem what anyone drives down down the street. But it does make a difference, I think, to people's general attitude when you see what what other clubs are other clubs are doing. The question about how desperate leads are is a, a really, it's really difficult one to answer because they do have this gap over the bottom three, so they're not in it in the way that certain other clubs are, but they're certainly not out of it either. And that's probably the the anxiety here, really, isn't it? Is that a quiet January might not stop stop them getting through to the end of the season and being fine. But I don't think you'll find many supporters who like the idea of kind of taking that chance and crossing fingers. I mean, can you imagine it on February the 1st, the feeling, what it's going to be like if, let's say, Newcastle get something from us and uh, and there are no signings in. That is, I mean, that is proper. There's balls on the line, isn't the, it? The counter argument is that if Leeds get something at West Ham and beat Newcastle, I think people will care considerably less about what's happened this month than, than they do at the moment. It seems to me that provided Leeds stay up, the real pressure window is going to be the summer coming. And obviously, if they go down, there would be questions asked, really big questions asked about this January and, and last summer as well. But one way or another, when they get to the end of this season, they're going to have to think seriously about the positions they need to improve, about what they need to do to make sure that it doesn't go the way it is at the moment. And that was that was kind of the gist of the injury article that I was writing about. Some of it will be bad luck and, and some of it will be. But I think it's kind of wrong to assume that it's all bad luck. And it seems to me that when the injury list gets this bad, it's something that you have to think seriously about whether or not you can do anything to, to, to mitigate this. And I don't mean with signings, that's a separate thing. 
but to mitigate the number of injuries you're, you're getting. Well, and, that feels like you're tiptoeing around the issue of Bielsa's training. Well, the, the problem with that is that nobody's ever said to me it's an issue and it's a problem and it's, it's you know, it, it is affecting but the But who, who would ever say that from within the club? If you're chatting to people, no one's going to say, well, listen, I'm, it, a bit, I'm concerned by what's happening because the, you, then you kind of, you're breaking the silence within the club, isn't it? But, so. but if it was a massive problem, then somebody might, you know, somebody might say that. But what's not in dispute is that the players do get pushed extremely hard and they do get pushed to the edge and, and there is no kind of pulling back from that and it's the way it's always been. And, and you have to caveat that always by saying that's the reason it's gone well under Bielsa. It had to be like that. He would, he would always have had it like that. Uh, so in order for it to be a success, that, that kind of had to work. But I, th- I was thinking back to the summer of, of 2019, end of Bielsa's first season, and they sorted out his contract and agreed that he was going to stay for the following year. And they sat down and they spoke about the things that were going to make a difference, you know, the things that were going to make the marginal gains to take them from playoff defeat to automatic promotion, ideally, and, and champions, as it turned out. And one of the things, and he was involved in this discussion, one of the things was reduce the number of injuries, you know, reduce the number of days and games that are being lost individually to injuries because it does affect the options you have. It, defe- it affects how, how strong your hand is. And it seems to me that if that was something worth looking at in the summer of 2019 and the following year, that the year where they went up, they got a hell of a lot of games out of Ben White, out of people like Clake. Bamford went from the two knee ligament injuries in his first season to playing 45 games, 43 starts in, in the season where they won the title. So on paper, it seemed as if whatever they were doing or the kind of attention on that made a difference. And my feeling with the injury crisis at the moment is that maybe this is a total one-off and maybe you'll not see this again. But I think if you had another season where this happened, you'd be in real real danger of it affecting you more. Pointed question for you now then. Go on. Do you think that the club hierarchy would prefer a bigger squad? I think they probably would, yeah. But but I, I think if you went across football and asked about, a, a, you know, the size of the squad at Leeds, I think you would find a huge number of people who would say, you know, coaches, players, whatever else, who would say, yeah, I'd, I'd like a bigger squad than that. I mean, it's fairly unique. You know, you don't find many squads that, that are this thin. So yeah, I think I think they would see the sense of that, definitely. But at the same time, they've always given Bielsa total autonomy over this because he's got to have it, you know, in order for it to work at Leeds and in, in order for him to be happy and, and for his, his kind of remit to be met, he's got to have final say on this and, and that's never going to change. Do you think this season's maybe exposed uh, a weakness in putting so much power into his hands? Well, yes and no. I mean, to answer that question would be to say, would you roll back to 2018 and change the agreement that was there when he signed? And I don't think you would. And... We said right at the, everybody said right at the outset, this is what you get with Bielsa. When when you sign Bielsa and when you, you appoint him as manager, these are the things that you've got to agree to, these are the things that you've got to do. So stuff with players, obviously, but then the training ground, the changes you've got to make. He wants these changes and give or take, Leeds have changed pretty much everything or, or upgraded pretty much everything that he's asked for. Because that was part of the agreement at the outset. If you want me as manager, this is what I want to do. And likewise with the players, you know, my assumption before Bielsa came in was that he would look at the squad that struggled under Heckenbottom and and latterly under Christiansen as well and say, you know, I can't work with this. I I want complete change. And on the contrary, he basically said to them, I'll keep most of these players and we won't sign many and we'll crack on. And and it absolutely worked. So, no, I don't think it's been a mistake to to give him too much power because they're in the Premier League and he's he's done what he he was here to do. But I think, I kind of said earlier in the season, 
the fact that the small squad worked for him previously doesn't mean it's working now. And I think the fact that it isn't really working working now is something that you at least have to look at and, and address. So with Bielsa, it is in for a penny, in for a pound, isn't it, really? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, yeah. but we all knew that, didn't we? Yeah, oh, of course we did. I'm not I'm not arguing against it. I'm just, I think it's just an interesting, like, philosophical question how we all square that off because, well, I mean, would you both agree the squad is too small? Yes. Yes. And I feel it is, yeah. Not by a huge amount. I don't think you need to add vastly to it. And and I can't help thinking that... Does it just they, need to be better then? Well, per, well perhaps that is... That is the point of the conversation that we're coming to, and I was saying that the next window is going to be a really big one for them. And I'm not pretending that they're, you know, they're in sweet waters at the moment because because they're not. But I do think they'll have enough to stay up, and I do think they will stay up. But next summer, it's going to be very difficult to look at how this season has gone and say that this squad in its entirety doesn't need changed to some extent. West Ham again at the weekend. Phil, you looking forward to making that journey? Very much so. Very much so. Yes. <laughs> what time did you get home yes. on the train, by the way? On uh, uh, it was half Sunday. past half past midnight, um, and I just just caught the connection at at Grantham. But we made it on time. I got home. Can't complain. We will get into that in just a second or two. First of all, um, the Premier League revenues for 2020 2021 have been revealed. I.e., last season. That's the the COVID season. Leeds coming out of it in the end with. 132 and a half million quid, just a shade over that. The important bit here is that each TV appearance was worth just shy of a million, 960 grand. We were on 24 times, which brought us just short of 22 million pounds. And then each league position was worth just over 2.1 million. So in finishing ninth, we got 26 million pounds for that. Yeah. Why do clubs want to get promoted into the Premier League? Romance and ambition, obviously, but because you get promoted as Leeds did and you pull in almost £133 million, which, I mean, I, I can't really go back and, and add it up in its entirety in, in my head, but that would cover a fair number of years of revenue down in, in the EFL. It's off the scale in, in comparison to that. But also you, you notice that, or you, you see the benefit of being a club who are attractive to TV broadcasters and Leeds tend to be anyway because they pull in big audiences regardless of, of who the manager is or how well it's going. But Bielsa is a big draw as well. He's an interesting story. His, his team have played really, really good football and, and did last season. And 24 live appearances. I mean, I mean, Kinnear, Will, I think, have spoken about this on the podcast he, he did with you and he's spoken to us before about the fact that in the Championship, your broadcast revenue for the year is in the low millions, like three, four million, something, five million, something like that. In the Premier League, from live appearance facility fees, it's, like you said, almost £22 million. The difference is enormous. But if you drop down to Sheffield United, who are at the bottom of the earnings totals, they would only broadcast 11 times. Therefore, their facility fees are £10.5 million as opposed to Leeds, which is £21.8 It's a massive, massive difference. And there is still, within the Premier League, there is still quite a bit of disparity there from Man City at the, the top of the pile, £152 million down to Sheffield United at the bottom who finished on 97 million. You know, it's not as if it's a an even split, but blame me, there's a lot of money to work with there. There is. And there are only five clubs that were shown on TV more than us last season and clubs that finished above us, Leicester and West Ham, both shown fewer times than we were. Uh, just going back to the madness of January, by the way, I, I think it might have been somebody who tweeted you, Phil, who suggested something along the lines of, Maybe the plan is is not to invest in January and to go down and take the parachute payments 
um, in, the, in the AFL. It's like, look at the numbers. Look no, at these numbers. No, <laughs> no, no. It'll make fools of all of us will this January window, won't it? Bearing in mind as well that none of this includes your sponsorship money. None of it includes your match day revenue or your other commercial streams. This is all to do with essentially central payments or TV payments from the um, from the Premier League. And the total at the bottom, two and a half billion pounds split between the clubs. I mean, the idea that going down for parachute payments and coming back up would be a, a good move is just absolute lunacy. And I'm telling you now, there's, a, there's nobody at the club who thinks that's a good move. I'd like to know the 49ers' opinion on that. Yeah. <laughs> Having sunk a load of investment cash in. Goodness <laughs> me. We're all right to just go yeah, down. Just- We'll just go down. It'll be fine. We'll definitely come back up. <laughs> I mean, it's the, easy. The, the parachute payments are becoming a massive problem because, and they've they've always been a bit of an issue, but they're becoming a bigger and bigger problem because they are creating almost tears within tears in the in the championship. But managing them and making them work for you in the championship is not as easy as it looks. And no, a club who'll get an hundred thirty-two million pounds from the Premier League are not going to choose to go back into the EFL. <laughs> well, it is back to Premier League business on Sunday then, and, and West Ham and. Potentially Bamford and or Rodrigo back in action, which is going to come as a bit of a, a welcome relief after everything that's happened. I do regret speaking a week ago, getting all giddy and saying that I thought maybe it felt like the worst of the injuries was over. Well, maybe you've lanced the boil. Who knows? Maybe that was the last last hurrah and it's all going to get better from here. Bamford should have played at West Ham, but had a, a problem in training last week. We'll, we'll hear from Bielsa how he's doing tomorrow. There was a bit of talk earlier in the week that Rodrigo might be okay as well, but... Rodrigo hasn't played since the end of November. Um, so, uh, you know, given Bielsa's track record, it'd be a little bit of a surprise to see him get bombed in straight away at West Ham. Uh, and and the thing about injuries with, with Bielsa is that it's pointless second-guessing until you get into his press conference and find out what he's thinking and what he's actually planning to do because there is always a difference between being fit, in inverted commas, and being ready to play for him. But Llorente is suspended, one-match ban. Tyler Roberts is out anyway, but would have been would have been suspended. They're still missing a lot of players. It just makes it another very, very tough game. Do we know if Furpo's likely to be available because of the concussion protocols and all that? Not sure yet, actually. We'll, we'll see tomorrow. Uh, he did play on for quite a long time and he, you could see him being studied on the pitch after he collided with Melier, but then in the second half was making it quite obvious that he was feeling dizzy. He said when he came off that he was feeling okay um, and, he, and he thought he was all right, but yeah, we'll we'll find out. Out shortly. Did you share the sense of terror that I think we all did when we saw Melier clatter into <laughs> Furpo and thought, well, at least it's a two for one. <laughs> if they're going to get two more injuries, might as well make it one incident. You see, that that's why injuries are, are nuanced and why you have to kind of discuss it in a nuanced way. There is nothing anybody can do about Furpo and Melier running into each other apart from those two trying not to run into <laughs> each other. And to take Bamford as an example, him being injured in a tackle at Newcastle is just the way it goes. You know, that's the, the run of the sport. But him coming back against Brentford and pulling a hamstring is the, is celebrating is to be perfectly honest the sort of thing that physios work to avoid and want to avoid and, and don't want to don't want to happen. So it you know it is a kind of unclear picture. But what isn't unclear at the moment is that there are still a lot of players out. So who are we likely to see? Then I've lost track of where all the injuries are now. And what's the what's the I, the likeliest scenario? Do you feel I should really have made a list, shouldn't <laughs> I? Because um, I'm I'm doing this off the the top of my head. But obviously Phillips and Cooper are still missing. I think Leeds are sort of quietly hopeful actually that Phillips might beat the kind of March return date. But but we'll have to have to see. Urente absent clearly. Roberts as well. Gilhart is missing. Bamford and Rodrigo, doubtful, strike, doubtful. Again, we'll, we'll wait for a 
decision on him. There are almost certainly others that I've forgotten about, but it's <laughs> pretty. It is it is a hefty, hefty list. It looks likely to be Dan James up front, doesn't it? If assuming those those two cannot get fit, and mm. then it'll be. I, I mean, I don't like Dan James up front. I have to say, I, I quite I've quite enjoyed his some of his performances out wide. I think he's looking like he's probably going to be an all right kind of signing for us. He looks quite useful, but down the middle against some giants. I don't fancy it at all. Doesn't feel like a, a nine. Um, and West Ham pretty uncompromising defensively. You know, they've got some big big boys in there. Um, it doesn't make it easy. And I'm, I'm with you. I've, I've liked what I've seen of James recently down the left in particular. And you'd like to see him playing more there. But again, as we were talking about with Bate, it kind of becomes a little bit needs must. And given that Greenwood came away from West Ham with a, an injury, it might be that there really isn't much in the way of alternatives. If I mean, if Firpo does make it, to left back presumably Dallas stays in midfield if Dallas needs to play left back then we are down to Forshaw Click and Bate I guess as our as our midfield which would be kind of interesting to see you would think so although yeah because he, he played Robin Koch uh, in the kind of holding role on Sunday but Koch you would assume is going to have to drop back into centre back to cover for Urenti I mean maybe he'll if plays again I was going to ask know, that yeah actually, I mean so? maybe maybe he does and actually I wouldn't have a, a great problem with that at all um, after Sunday, but not in great shape to go down there and, and get anything from it, sadly. Never write it off though, Phil. I no. Mean, I'm, you, you're too pragmatic sometimes. Where's the romance? That's I, know. I, know. I remember you talking up this kind of magic ahead of the Man City <laughs> game and, and Arsenal, and now oh, it's unlikely. But... No, but the thing is, right, this season has been, and we were, we were speaking before, weren't we, about the lack of joy that has been yeah. um, sort of this season and, and that this second half of the season potentially could be quite joyless if particularly if they don't sign anybody in the window and you know we just sort of chug on to the end and even if we do stay up it's not going to have felt like a vintage season by any stretch of the imagination but you contrast it with last season and last season was full of loads of little joyful moments even little things like seeing the progress between the away game at Old Trafford and then Ellen Road and and the way that we managed to stop Liverpool as well and equalise against them digging results out we know they've got it in them and we've not seen a lot of it, if at all, this season. But it is still there within this team to do stuff, even under difficult circumstances. So I always kind of, I always fall back on that hope because I want to enjoy my football. And this yeah. season hasn't really been very enjoyable a lot of the time. No, I understand that. And and we are due a result that kind of surprises us slightly. You know, and, and this, I think, would be one of those. West Ham played um, midweek. Moyes wasn't very happy about the fact that the Norwich game had been parachuted into Wednesday night, um, that was was one of their postponements. Uh, but they won that game. Bowen scored twice again. They're in pretty good shape. I think it comes back to that same old problem, which is that it's just been pushed too far at Leeds because of the injuries and, and the absences. The team has been pushed to a point where it's so unfamiliar and it's changing all the time that it doesn't give you any chance of building up continuity and partnerships or in performances. There's not an, an awful lot of familiarity across the team because of how much it is having to shift. That does make it extremely tough. It's hard to see too much coming from this weekend, but at the same time, I kind of felt as if you could have got West Ham a little bit the way they were playing last weekend because it wasn't particularly vibrant and it wasn't full throttle from them at all. They they just kind of did enough and teams that do enough, you can sometimes get the better of, but it's um, it's not going to be easy. I quite like the concept of West Ham generally this season in that it seems to be maybe disrupting the top four a little bit and Lord only knows, I think this this division needs a bit of a shake-up just to have something different happen. But that said, they're not Man City, are they? Or no. They don't necessarily say of the depth of Chelsea, although Thomas Tuchel might agree that their poor Chelsea with their billion-pound squad is constantly threadbare, so why are they being made to play all these games? 
but there are no there are sort of a known quantity at West Ham, aren't they? You know how they're going to play. They're quite pragmatic in their football and then rely on either power or star turns from individuals to to create stuff for them. So you know, I, think, I think that's a really good analysis of them. They're not a, a stellar team, but they have very good players and they absolutely, you know, you said you know what you're going to get from them. They know what they're going to get from themselves. They absolutely know what they're about. And, you know, Moyes has managed to to nail that down. And I think they've probably got a, a fairly strong chance of Europe this season. I think they, I think ultimately they might be a bit short, but not too far away. And it just works for, for Moyes. It's, it's reliable. It's dependable. He doesn't have vast resources at the moment but he has enough and I mean that team on Sunday that he picked was extremely strong and it made me think that they probably quite fancy the chances in the FA Cup and just to continue that thought I was going to say that Leeds have rarely been as bad as we've feared like you know the online reaction to to upcoming games or seeing teams picked is always worst case scenario because I'm saying like Twitter is a place where everybody pours out all their anxieties it's not necessarily a reflection of real life but this team has more in them than than I think socials would have you believe. And we're never necessarily, not never as bad as we fear, but it's it's rare that we're as bad as we fear. And I always think we're, we're more likely to put in a decent performance, more so than we think. We have been terrible this year on occasion, but mainly the spankings we've had are in games that you, you kind of pencil down as zero points anyway. Southampton away, I think, was one that was was troubling because we kind of consider them to be a you know a fairly like-for-like sort of team and a team that we should maybe take some points off across the season. But... Taking no points at Man City is fine. The nature of it was pretty tough to watch. And again, Arsenal at home was certainly the first half was fairly hard to watch. But yeah, in when we've needed to, we've got points. But I suppose I'm viewing this as a game we don't really need to take points from. Anything we do get is a bonus. One of the reassuring things with Bielsa, I feel, is that he was quite willing to acknowledge that Southampton had not been good enough. And and he called that one of his hardest weeks that he'd, he'd had at Leeds, which at least made you think, well, he's seeing what, what we saw there. Likewise with, with City, it wasn't as if he was coming away saying what an outstanding team they are. Wasn't, wasn't it amazing to see them play such good football and what can you do and and bloody bloody blah. And the way that I've actually seen managers do with Leeds, particularly in the Championship, you get totally outclassed. Remember Nigel Adkins doing it at Hull and it started a bit of a ding-dong in the press conference because Leeds had, had won over there and he kind of said, well, how can we compete with that? You know, they're just such a good team and this, that and the other. And, and the counterpoint was, well, Bielsa hasn't spent a fortune at Leeds and that squad isn't hideously expensive. They've just been very, very well coached and very, very well prepared. So Bielsa could quite easily have come away from City saying, that's kind of what happens when they play like that and, and look at the value of their squad. But he didn't. He said, you know, that's the worst we've ever played under me. Um, and that was the end of it. You know, there's no mitigation for it at all. Just um, just took it on the chin. So I agree with, with Michael, the real Hastings and the real difficult games have been the ones that you didn't expect too much to to come from and the good thing for Leeds is that they have matched up well to the size that they really need to be beaten which is you know Watford, Burnley, Norwich and, and obviously a point at, at Newcastle but could easily easily have won that game I still feel that at full tilt they are much better than 16th in this division but it is mid-January now there are still a lot of injuries it's really hard to know if that level of impetus is ever going to come this season because time's ticking on yeah because that is the flip side of what I was just saying is that rarely are we as bad as we fear but we haven't been as good as we can be for most of this season yeah I think that's right and I, I suspect that'll be a frustration for Bielsa himself that they haven't moved forward from last season and it was asking a lot to improve on ninth, and I didn't think they would I didn't really feel like they had to. You know, for the second season in the Premier League, 
I didn't think a good season had to be matching what they did last year or, or bettering what they did last year. But I think he would have expected to have taken more points than this. I think he would expe- have expected to have accrued more good performances than, than Leeds have. I, I think you can see in his body language that it's been, it has been a frustration this season. But as I said, the, there are eight points clear of the bottom three and none of the bottom three would say no if you offered an exchange of positions. Do you think this season, and I mentioned this over on our show, I think this week, it's one of those seasons we just need to get it out of the way now. It does feel a little bit like that, doesn't it? Yeah, it's kinda, a chore. Kind of roll, roll on May, roll on to a really, really big summer. Do you, um, think, do you think that's the disappointing aspect of the, of the Premier League as a as an entity? Is that there's actually very little to play for a lot of the time, and I know that we've got the jeopardy of trying to stay away from relegation. But if another couple of wins, and if we maybe extend this gap on the bottom four teams, then you're going to start to think, right, well, that's another one chalked off. It's not really any different to any league in the world, though, is it? You know, where you have, like in the Championship, if you were if you were anywhere between kind of 10th and 18th, 19th, you were nowhere, were you, apart from just heading for another another Championship season? So there is definitely a group, you know, a core of clubs, five, six, something like that, who, once they get into stable mid-table position, aren't going to do anything. But you have a fair number of European places, Champions League places, obviously, you've got your, your relegation places as well. There's There's, there's plenty going on. I, I don't, feel as if it's any worse than the championship in that respect. I think the difference with it is that for a lot of clubs, there's realistically only one end of it that you can get involved in if you go into. Whereas in the championship, yeah. there's always that possibility well, that you say, might be blinding or you might be appalling. Look at Blackburn and, this season. They're pushing up towards the top two. Mm-hmm. You wouldn't have necessarily ever predicted that. There is a little bit of, I guess, of uh, almost a randomising factor in the championship that season to season, somebody could put together a good run. And uh, It's funny, isn't it? We, we're saying this and... and having talked about the championship earlier, Fulham won 7-0 again away for the second time this season. So there is almost another league within a league mm-hmm. forming there and the parachute payments they've got are enabling them to compete and then they're second at the minute and will go top if they win their game in hand on uh, on Bournemouth. But when you look at the, the top four, five, six clubs, Bournemouth, Fulham, Blackburn, West Brom, QPR, Huddersfield, you'd immediately have any three of those pegged for being in trouble next season if they came up to the Premier League, wouldn't you? Yeah, but but also potentially in trouble in the championship if it just doesn't go well for them over the summer. That's that's the thing about the championship. You you can get involved at either end of the table without too much difficulty. Whereas in the, the Premier League, and particularly now that, that bracket of top three clubs of City, Chelsea and Liverpool, there's just no way into it. With the exception of, you know, a club like Man United, possibly Arsenal and Spurs, because they you know, there could come a time where, where there was lots of money at either. Nobody else can expect to muscle in on that and, and City most of all. I mean, they're just they're just out in front, aren't they? They are, but never mind. To matters at hand, and that is Sunday. I'm going to be a real coward with my prediction for this one because one. my hope is that Leeds somehow sneak a 2-1. I think a draw is a good result, but will more than likely on balance of probability lose. So all three is what I'm going for. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> I'd be happy to scrape out uh, the rarely seen Bielsa 0-0. That'd, yeah. be, that'd be perfectly good for me. Home win, I think it'll be fairly tight. I don't think there'll be much in it again. I don't think it'll be a, a fantastic spectacle, but I think this is West Ham's game, really. Well, yeah, I should have said, I, I was I was hoping for a nil-nil. I do, <laughs> I do think we'll lose. <laughs> I mean, just looking at the game, I mean, we've played them four times now. We've, there was the the game at Ellen Road earlier in the season where we, we were a bit unfortunate. Maybe we could have got something from that, but generally speaking, across the four games, they have had the, the better of us, haven't they? And uh, it was a, it was a penalty, wasn't it, that we, we scored against them before. I mean, we, we've not particularly managed to lay a glove on them in some of these games. So mm. 
um, and with such a weakened team. And that is the frustration. I'm just of, not seeing it. That's another frustration of the Premier League. You look at sides like West Ham and you go, yeah, they're a better side than us. Should lose that. I don't like that. <laughs> Where, where's the romance in that? There's none, is there? Uh, you're forgetting the, the, the many years that did happen in the Championship. No, no, you, I know. I know. I you, know have to, you have to feel your way into it, though, don't you? And you have to grow and, and develop to the point where you can throw punches back and you can throw your weight around and you become one of those sides that other people say we can't really, can't really live with them. I guess the challenge for everybody and what everybody's got to do is to try and find some joy in the second half of this season. And, and honestly, I would direct you to what Stevie Ward, the, the Rhinos, ex-Rhinos captain, was saying about the club. I thought he, he kind of articulated what I'm never quite, something in a way that I'm never quite sure how to do it, which is that at Leeds, it's like, it is like this last outpost of authentic football, particularly if you're looking at the crowd. It is football where it where you feel it and people do dream and where it does matter and where it isn't yet totally sanitised and be happy with that if if not a lot else at the moment because as we've seen there are other clubs where it is not like that in big corporate stadiums next to shopping centres where the authentic club you could argue has uh, has now disappeared indeed mm. and that does wrap it up then for this episode of the Phil Hayes show let's finish on a positive I'll remind you of this a couple of seasons ago West Ham you would have had tipped as a relegation favourite and look at them now so it goes to show what a few astute signings and a good coach can do not only that, but it also goes to show what time spent in the Premier League does and the more seasons you can accrue and the more seasons you can build up and the more years you can get through. And the more it, 132 the bet, million pounds. Absolutely, the better it, it should be for you. And I was kind of reflecting in a piece a while back that in a strange sort of way, if Leeds stay up this season and if Bielsa makes it happen and if they, they you know, mid-table and, and move into next summer, this could end up being as important a season for the club as any of, of his seasons um, at Ellen Road because you do need to get through season two and it, it can be very difficult. It has been difficult this time round. It's important always not to expect too much too soon, which doesn't mean that you should be happy about the fact that the results have gone the way that they have. But this is a division that is always going to find you at some point and it definitely has with, with Leeds um, over the past few months. But that's not to say that this won't be a handy stepping stone. So that's, that's the concluding message. You're a fool if you dream. <laughs> <laughs> we'll speak to you next week. The Phil Hay Show.